On the creative journey, it's easy to get lost, but don't worry, you'll lift off. Sometimes you just need a creative pep talk. Hey, you're listening to the Creative Pep Talk podcast. I'm your host, Andy J. Pizza. I have been thinking a lot lately about the journey and the destination, that kind of trope. Uh, I realized that early in my creative practice, I got really goal-oriented, and it was super powerful. I still am a big believer in goals and intentions and, and the clarity of that. I think it's important, especially for people like me, who are divergent thinkers, who have a hard time making decisions, have an easy time coming up with options. Uh, Goals are really, really powerful, and I think they always will be for me. But recently, I have been reminding myself that the only reason that I ever had any goals was as a way to clarify my efforts so that I knew if I achieved that goal, I would be closer to to be spending my life and my time in the kind of creative energy that I wanted to do. You know, when I had a goal of, I want to make an illustration for the New York Times, it wasn't about making the illustration for the New York Times. And when I got to that goal, it didn't make any of the stuff I was doing better. The journey literally was the point where I wanted to be making that kind of illustration. That was that goal was clarifying to how I wanted to be spending my time. And then once I was able to do that and achieve that, it told me like, you're doing it. So you're doing what you wanna do. But it's easy when you get goal oriented to forget that the reason you're doing that is the life that you wanna have, not the destination, not the day where you achieve it, but the time leading up to it, how you want to spend your life, and the time after that. So it's everything before and after and not really the thing that you reach. And I've been in a process both with my wife Sophie and episode 400, we talked a lot about the anti-goal of, you know, what we're not going to do, how we don't want to focus our energy and give ourselves freedom to explore for the sake of creating. I feel personally like I'm in a season like that. And I have a sense that a lot of other people are feeling that feeling of let's get back to why we make what we make, both enjoying the process, expressing ourselves, the infinite game of coming up with new stuff. Like I feel like we all are, a lot of us are feeling the need to ground ourselves in the reason we're doing this at a time when, you know, AI is doing what it's doing in the creative space and the world is just been such a chaotic place and the economy's in a chaotic state, I feel like it's a great time to regroup and rethink and remember why we make what we make. And so I'm really excited to have Eric Zimmer of the One You Feed podcast on this episode because he has done an enormous amount of work in the spiritual space. And his podcast, The One You Feed, is is a really massive podcast, amazing guests like Pete Holmes and Deepak Chopra and Susan Cain and a bunch of people that we've talked about on this show even. But I love how he postures himself within the spiritual space, because for me, I'm not here to judge how you think about spirituality or whether you don't think about it or you reject it, whatever it does. That's not really a concern of mine. 
for me personally, I've kind of accepted that spirituality is at the very least a sort of right-brained way of conceptualizing our internal world and how it relates to the grandness of the, the oneness of the universe um, in the most, you know, material at, at the very least in the most materialistic sort of way that it's a way of, that we can conceptualize this so that we can engage in stuff that is very important for our psyche, our mental health, our well-being. Um, and then I'm even more than open to beyond that. But at the very least, I feel like I can co-sign that. And I feel like Eric does a tremendous job at showing up to that space in that whole self sort of way through the lens of spirituality. We haven't talked a lot about spirituality on this show. I think there is an essence of spirituality in the show throughout. However, we haven't hit it head on because I think it can be really dicey territory. It can be divisive. It can be messy. There's a whole bunch of reasons why I've mostly avoided it, but I was really pumped to bring on someone who I think has very responsibly engaged in that space in a way that's really powerful and helpful. And I wanted to get his expertise and bring some of that attentiveness to the journey and to the process and using creativity and approaching it with sort of a meditative state. And so I hope that this episode encourages you to remember what you love about the process, why the part of making stuff that you would make even if nobody else cared about it or if there was no possibility to make money on it. And at the end of this episode, I'm going to wrap it up with a little call to action where we are going to um, do the CTA call to adventure, some homework on how to put this to practice in your own creative work um, right after this episode. I really needed to rehaul my website. I was talking to some web people, looking around, and I got intrigued by Squarespace's new fluid engine, partially because it just sounds cool, but also because it allows you to drag and resize and layer up anything you can imagine. I dove in, rebuilt my site. It's the most me site that I've ever had. I just absolutely love it. Launched it. Got such a great response. Some industry illustration and designy peers even reached out and was like, hey, who coded this thing, man? I'm like, y'all, I did it by myself. No coding with Squarespace's new Fluid Engine. I told him, like, you should go check it out. You're going to be surprised with what you can do. And I built this thing before Squarespace reached out to sponsor the show. So I was like, boom, easy peasy. I was going to tell you about this new site. Anyway, go check it out, AnnieJPizza.com, if you want to see what I did with it. If you want to try it yourself, make a site that's totally you where you can build a portfolio, sell content and courses and all kinds of other stuff, head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain with promo code PEPTALK, all one word, all uppercase. This episode is supported by In The Making, an original podcast brought to you by Adobe Express, the all-in-one content creation app included in your Creative Cloud membership. If you are trying to boost the YouTube, TikTok, Reels content side of what you're doing, one episode of In The Making that I think will be super useful to you is their episode with John Yushai. 
I think John's method for including his audience in the process is really inspiring. And if you want to hear about that and more about leveling up your game in the creator economy, just search In The Making in your podcast player to listen. Many thanks to In The Making and Adobe Express for their support. listened to plenty of your episodes throughout the past probably five, six, seven, eight years. Yeah. And I've really appreciated your approach to spirituality because it, it handles it in such a way that is open enough for me and also just grounded enough in reality that, so I, I, it, I really appreciate the way that you approach it. But as I dove into uh, watching your creative mornings talk, which I loved, yeah. And reading a little bit about you, I had no idea of where the journey kind of started. I never would have pegged you for someone who had the kind of young life that you did in your early 20s. Could you just tell my audience a little bit about that? I'd love to dig into how someone from there gets to where you are now, if you don't yeah. mind kind yeah, of going no, into no, it. No, I'm happy to. It's funny. I was thinking about this the other day. And I was thinking about how unlike my former self, I sometimes feel because as a young person, I was out of control completely. And now as a 52 year old person, I feel generally like I'm in control. And by in control, I don't mean in control of the world because the world is completely uncontrollable. And the worst, I mean, you know, there's a poet, Mark Nepo, talks about the terrible knowledge, right? That anything could happen to any of us at any time. So I have no illusion that I'm controlling the world. Yeah. But as far as my own self, I feel like, and even control is the wrong word, I feel like I live mostly according to my values. Yeah. And so... But that wasn't always the case. And so getting there has taken me 26, 27 years. But yeah, 20, I mean, the short version, and some of my listeners will know this, homeless heroin addict at 24, looking at going to jail for 25 years. I had hepatitis C, I weighed 100 pounds. I mean, I was dying and I had just been out of control for years. Yeah. And so I ended up through a series of events back in treatment yet another time. It was my first time. It took me several tries, but this time took, and I stayed sober about eight years. Yeah. Uh, 12 step programs primarily. Then a couple of things happened. I went out, I drank again for a number of a few years. Then I've been back about 15 years. So I think it's just been, you know, if the question is how did I get here? I think it's just been a very gradual process. Mm-hmm of becoming a little bit better. I mean, I'm a big believer in a phrase I use a lot, little by little, a little becomes a lot, Mm. right? There's no way I could be at 26, be the person I am at 52. That's just impossible. We we can't speed that. I don't think we speed that up. Um, I do know that at 26, though, I was forced to, to think very hard about what life is what matters in AA where I was, they talk about a spiritual, it's a spiritual program. So, so what does that mean? And we can, we can kind of get into that, but it made me start asking that question in a really serious way. 
at the age of 24, 25, because I was dying. Yeah. You know, it wasn't a idle question to me, right? It was a, it was a question of, of, of truly life or death. And how do I make changes in my life and learn that process was also the same thing, sort of a matter of life and death. And then even after I was sober a little bit longer, I kept looking at people around me who were dealing with addiction. So, so it's all, this question of how do we change, how do we become the person we are, has been, for me, a, a very fundamental question I've been kind of obsessed with for a long, long time. And some of that, I think, obsession has translated positively into my own life. Yeah. I wondered if uh, when I start, anytime I get to know anyone or I'm preparing for an interview, obviously I'm looking for story elements. Yeah. And with the heroin addiction, yeah. what do you think, like at the start of a story, a character wants something, Yeah. obviously. I'm sure you're familiar with that. Having interviewed so many people in the spiritual space, I'm guessing mythology and religion and all of that has come into play quite a bit. So at the start, the character wants something. And I don't know if it was heroin or if it was something else, but if it was that, what do you think you were trying to get from it? Yeah, I I know what I was trying to get from it. Um, By the time I got to heroin, that might have been more trying to escape the nightmare I had turned my life Mm -hmm. into. But in the beginning, it was very clear what it was about for me was connection, which is what spirituality is about to me, connection. That, I mean, at the, it, at the heart of spirituality me is, you know, connecting with what matters to us. And so I wanted connection. And for whatever reason, alcohol and marijuana and LSD and all those things brought the world alive for me in a way that it wasn't if I was sober. Yeah. And we could explore all the reasons in which the ways I had deadened myself. Sure. Even by the time I was very young. And um, we could go into the reasons why I had deadened myself, right? But I don't yeah. know that that's that important. But I had. And, and alcohol and drugs brought me back. It's interesting. Um, Carl Jung made the analogy to Bill Wilson, who founded AA. They, they knew each other. And Carl Jung said it's no surprise that you guys discovered that a spiritual solution is the answer to your problem because the word, the very word spirit is for alcohol spirits. Mm-hmm. Yeah. that comes from that. Yeah, it's, it. it's all tying back to that. So for me, it was a way of connecting to the world. When I drank, I was suddenly more interested in everything, everyone. There's a line from an old movie. I think it's called days of wine and roses. I may get that wrong, but there's a character, him and his wife are, both alcoholics and he gets sober and she isn't. And she says a line to him about why she can't. She says, you know, the world just looks so gray to me. It's so black and white. But when I drink, it's like all the colors get switched on. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that's what it was about. Yeah. Now again, eventually over time, I think that I fell into the cycle that all addicts fall into, which is we start to feel bad about ourselves and we can't handle that. And since we can't handle it, we go back to the substance, which then causes us to do things that make us feel bad about ourselves. And that's the downward spiral that addiction gets you on. But in the beginning, it was very clearly for me about connection. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. And I love the Carl Jung spirit spirits 
that's such a Jungian move. Um, it's almost like a dream interpretation. And just for the record, because we'll probably go here at some point, Young is, be- I was always interested in his stuff. And I, my way to him was probably Joseph Campbell, but he's kind of become my guy recently over the past few years. So I'm, I, and I also think, look, obviously we, le- we know a lot that we didn't know when he was working. So I'm right. not, I don't like uh, worship the guy, but I, I'm a huge Jungian fan. So that, that works for me. I, and so in terms of what you wanted from this substance, the obstacle was your life was falling apart, right? And that led to a better way to meet that need of life coming alive, right? And it came through AA, essentially. Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest. Like, to this very day, nothing quite lights the world up in the same way that drugs or alcohol did with that same immediate and intensity and and brightness. Although, well, I shouldn't say nothing. There have been some peak spiritual experiences I have that have even gone beyond where any of those things took me. Yeah. But they're rare. Yeah. Right. They're rare. Um, But what I have learned is how to enchant the world uh, as much as I seem to be capable of doing and in a way that leads to a far better outcome. Yeah. And allows me to really focus on and care about the things that matter to me. Yeah. You know, and that's the big thing. I mean, with addiction, it, it boils down to when it sort of reaches its apex, there's only one thing that matters and that's getting high. That's yeah. it. Yeah. Everything else is secondary to that. Mm-hmm. And so that's a terrible way to live a life, right? You're, there's no way that turns out well. Yeah. Yeah. That makes tons of sense. The way I just tend to think about story is character wants something that they think is going to meet a need they get blocked from that. And the thing that blocks it ends up delivering the need better than the thing they wanted. Yes. And so I was reading your story and kind of thinking about how the, you know, the trouble with the law falling out the bottom with addiction uh, was the obstacle that led to the spiritual path. And I, it reminds me of, I think it was Duncan Trussell. I heard him say, um, that drugs are often like a helicopter to the top of the mountain. Yep. Yeah. And so, and, and he was kind of also saying, and I don't disagree with this necessarily, but he was kind of also saying that, you know, getting a helicopter to the top of the mountain has some benefits and I'm not co-signing drug use, but I am just saying I can understand the justification behind getting what that immediate Mm -hmm. enlivening of life can do for somebody. I get that. But also climbing the mountain gives you all kinds of other things. Yeah. Not to mention the helicopter ride to the top of the mountain. It's not like you stay up there. Yeah. Right? You just don't. You you kind of just go over the it, top. Yeah. yeah. And then you, yeah. then, then you sort of, then you sort of crash. And the thing about you know, I believe in life like everything has a price. It just does. Yeah. Everything has a price. I don't mean that to sound negatively. I just mean, or every action has a consequence. We could just be that simple with it, right? And and alcohol and drugs, to the extent that they bring you up, yeah. they're going to bring you back down. Yeah. Now, occasionally, I think there are people who use uh, substances in what I think are perfectly fine and good and acceptable sure. ways. Yep. I just can't. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like I keep taking the helicopter to the top of the mountain, 
even after I'm even after the helicopter crashes <laughs> nine times out of ten, yeah. we never reach the top. We you know we we sideswipe a tree or something, and <laughs> and I but I keep trying. You're like, like strap me yeah, back yeah, in. Stra- I'm going one hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah, that that makes tons of sense. I. Yeah, it, I just think that um, there there's a lot there because I, I know that uh, creative people, a lot of the creative people I know, friends are friends with, they're very sensitive people. They go to substances for a whole number of reasons. And it's just, uh, I'm sure it's something that a lot of my audience can relate to. So yeah, I, I was just kind of curious about that. And then as you dove into your own spiritual path, yeah. eventually that kind of fascination, fascination, curiosity, how it impacted you, that just directly led to you doing your show, I'm assuming. It, it did. It took a long time. Yeah. I mean, I, I've been doing the show for nine years and I've spent, you know, since I got sober the first time, it's been something like 27 years. Yeah. I spent maybe four of that drinking again. So 23 years in recovery. And so, you know, it took me a while to get there. The other thing I was thinking is as you go into substance abuse and you're looking for life coming alive, but it costs you and it, you end up hitting a brick wall. Would you say, I know that we're kind of saying broadly spirituality, but I wanted to get into, I know meditation is a big thing for you. Mm -hmm. And I'm assuming that that is one of the tools in which you do see some color in life. And I wondered if we could talk a little bit about that as a type of, if I'm looking to you as the hero in that journey and you're bringing back an elixir, when I'm listening to you do a talk, I'm like, oh, I want some of that meditative process for my own creative uh, work. Yeah. Because at its best, when I am in the flow state, that's what it feels like. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I would love if we could just go into a little bit, I think you call it immersive attention. That, that was one piece that yeah, I, I wanted yeah. to go to. Um, if you could even just like walk us through how you tap into that, because I feel like if creators could start their process that way, it might help them find flow a little bit more often because it can be pretty uh, um, elusive, you know? Yeah, I think there are two people who talk about this type of deep, um, Mary Oliver would call it devotion, right? Devotional attention. And I think the people who talk about it are very much artists Mm. and mystics. Mm -hmm. Those are the two groups of people that I think talk about this most eloquently. And they're the two places I found it. Yeah. You know, I I read poetry a lot. And the reason I read poetry a lot is to see like poets see. There's a depth of attention to the natural world or to whatever is around them that always astounds me. And I try and, and learn to see like that. Yeah. My main spiritual tradition has been Zen Buddhism. And Zen Buddhism is very similar. It's just, it's always like, what is here right now? Pay closer attention, pay closer attention, look again, look again. And so both those, both of those are ways in, you know, but I do think that attention is one of the most important elements of a creative life, of a spiritual life. We could talk about what spiritual means, but I think of any kind of good life. 
yeah. is attention. Where is it? What are we paying attention to? William James said, um, my experience is what I agree to attend to. Mm. I mean, whatever we're giving our attention to very directly has to do with the quality of our life. Yeah. I mean, it, it, there's, I don't know of anything that's more foundational. And so I've learned a lot from both artists, poets, musicians, photographers, visual artists, and the mystics about this type of attention. Now, the mystics talk a lot about one of the ways in there is silence. And there's lots of different practices. Within the med- even the word meditation could connotate a lot of different practices. And I'm not sure that even meditation is the right path for everyone. Yeah. I'm not certain that it's always been the right path for me. But I do feel that time in silence, I feel like I can say, is probably good for most everyone, right? Some period where we're not being bombarded by yet more stimulus, where we do what we can to sort of turn the stimulus off. you about one more piece to that, which was, uh, I heard you make an interesting comparison between flow state and then, um, something that happens uh, on the spiritual side of life that is kind of maybe the same thing. Could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, in, in spirituality, the type of spirituality I am generally interested in is known as mystical spirituality. And, And what all that really means is it's about having a direct experience of something. Yeah. What that something is, what we call it, all that, you know, let's just, we don't need to bother there, right? Right now. Um, Sure. But it's about a direct experience of something. And it talked about having a mystical experience. And interestingly, um, scientists have come in and studied this, right? They started looking at it in the 60s when when LSD really started. And they started going like, okay, you know, we've done this uh, study of LSD. I think it was LSD and... um, Harvard, uh, theological students and, you know, 70% of them, you know, report having a mystical experience as part. So what the hell is that? Right. So they, so they've drawn up all these, um, list of here's the things that make up mystical experiences. And by looking at, you know, all the mystics throughout time, what they described happening. But if you take that list and you look at a list of what happens in flow states, you, you can't help but see like, Oh, geez, there's a lot of things here that look the same, right? A sense of ineffability, you know, you can't put it into words, right? You can't put into words what happens when you are in the creative flow, right? It's why we have a word like flow that we just had to give it some name, right? Yeah. You can't really talk about it. Same thing with a mystical experience. It, I can talk about it. I can tell you what happened, but I can't that's fall short of it. Yeah. You know, time tends to just take on a different sort of feel. Yeah. It disappears very often. It doesn't exist. Um, our sense of ourself. And what I, by, what I mean by that is our, 
our preoccupation with how we're doing, what we're doing, how we're feeling, you know, just the, the self-preoccupation tends to be gone in both mystical states and flow experiences. So I'm not saying they're the same thing. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. But, but they're, they're in the same neighborhood, yeah. you know, they are, and there are all sorts of different degrees in there, right? You can be mildly in flow or you can be lost for eight hours on a creative project, right? Yeah. You can feel a, 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 a couple moments of, of expansiveness and openness when you look at a tree yeah. Or you can have like everything just almost disappear on you in a, in a deep mystical state. So they're similar and there's a wide variety of degrees in them. But as somebody who is, uh, you know, has been part an artist at different points, I'm a musician primarily. If I look at myself, if we don't consider podcasting an art, you know, which I do, but, but go ahead. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, music, right. Yeah. And I can look at, moments of music that I'm really making music and I can look at some of my mystical experiences and go, yeah, there's a, that feels very similar, mm -hmm. you know, something special is going on there. Yeah. And, uh, on the note of podcasting as an art, I, this idea of immersive attention, one of the things that came up for me as I started to kind of reflect on when have I seen that in my own creative practice when I'm mm -hmm. really attentive. One of the ones that came up was a, a, an interview. Is yeah. that an interview requires you to just shut out everything else. And it's, I've, I always feel like <laughs> this is funny because I'm telling you this while we're doing a chat, but interviews have a quality of the type of attention that feels like a kind of devotion or love. Yes. And I, yeah. Do you feel this? You ever get in that state when you're interviewing? Yeah. It's funny. I will end interviews and I'll walk out and my partner will be like, how was it? And I'll be like, it was great. Well, what did you talk about? And I'll honestly be kind of blank. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. I, I literally yeah. <laughs> like, I, like it's, it's almost as if a part of me isn't there. Of course it is, you know? And, and, um, I, you know, I treat a conversation very seriously. I mean, I, I think they're very fun, but I, but I prepare for them yeah. very diligently in the same way that I play scale. You know, if, to me, it feels a little bit like playing scales. The mm. preparation for an interview yeah, sure. is like playing scales so that when I pick up the guitar with the band and I start improvising, it's like, it just, it can happen. Yeah. Same thing with a conversation. If I really know the core ideas, if I know that person well, I have the, you know, then I can just follow the conversation and, and notice what arises. It, it makes me think of something. We've got a couple of programs. One of them is called Circle of Connection. It's a small group program. And one of the modules is on um, a, a term I borrowed called noble listening. Mm -hmm. And after sort of the Buddha's um, Four Noble Truths is, is the sort of idea. Okay. Um, when we think of listening, we tend to think about all of our attention on the other person. Right. But the more I've reflected on it and the more I've really looked at listening, there is there are two things that happen in good listening. One is I do have a great deal of focus on you. But the other is that there is some internal focus yeah. on what is arising in me. What is coming up as a result of this interaction? Yeah. 
And being able to, to me, good conversation is both those things are happening. Now, great conversation is when I'm not thinking about either. Sure. It's just sort of happening. But that is a, I do think there's a skill to that. Although most everybody's had experiences of that where you just drop into conversation with someone. You're like, well, wow, we've been talking for two hours and it's just been really deep and I just haven't been there. But of course you have in a very deep way, but it just feels different. I almost feel like that. um, I would, the way I would, talk about it on the show is I call it taste. And that taste is listening to yourself. It's listening as you're making, like what is the thing that's lighting up your creative taste buds? And as soon as you said, it is that listening to the other. And I thought, I I hope you go that direction where you're also having this listening experience. And I, I wonder if, uh, that's really a good tool for getting into the place where you're not listening to any, it's just happening and you're out, out of it. Um, and I also wanted to highlight, cause I think this is something I've learned about my own process, whether it's getting ready for an interview or whether it's getting ready to do painting or whatever it might be. That same thing of, I had to learn the hard way with interviews. I've been doing this eight years and I, I wonder if this is, if you had this experience, but what I would have happen was I would prepare like crazy then I would go interview, not use much of the prep. It would go really well. And I'd be like, I don't even need to prep. <laughs> and then I would go into the next one, not prep that much. And then it would bomb. And then I'd be like, what is going on? And I think it's just what you're saying. I think it's a part of your brain. That prep is a part of your brain. That is a different, a different energy than what you want to bring to the yeah, you know, yeah. place. But you want to store it all, all those scales and all that muscle memory you want to put it there so that you can just yes. pull at it. Yeah. Yeah, a- absolutely. For whatever reason, and I am assiduous about prep. We do two interviews a week. And I, I mean, I think to myself so often, like, I, I could do way less prep than I do. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I, there's no reason for all this. But then whatever, there's another part of me, maybe it's my Midwestern work ethic that's right, sort of yeah. like, well... <laughs> But it's also just, I think a couple things happen there. One is, for me, it's my way of showing respect and love for yeah. the person, yeah, for my audience, right? It's, a, it's my way of saying, like, this is important to me. This matters to me. Your work matters to me. You listeners matter to me. This is how I, this is the, this is a form of love that I put into the prep. So to your point, I can forget about it Yeah. during the interview. I'm sure we all interviewers go through this where you, you know, you, you have a little phase where you're like, all right, well, I'm going to sort of script out where this conversation is going to go, yeah, which is a yeah. fool's error. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. But to, well, it's funny. We were, we were talking about this, you and I, before we started about how you create some of your episodes, right? Yeah. Because your episodes are more, uh, most of them are more monologues, I think. Yeah, um, and I, we were, I was talking about how well thought out they were. And we were talking about your process of, you know, at one point having been like, very, very loose to extraordinarily tight back to slightly looser. Yeah. But you kind of probably had to walk that, that journey to get to the point. And, but there's still, you're doing a lot of prep before you turn on the microphone. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, I think that there's also a thing that happens when you're prepping for an interview, if you're really prepped, whatever you need to do to get the kind of creative confidence that you need to sit down in the front of the person and feel like I'm ready. Yes. So I think that, cause I, I have that same thing with talks where 
if I've worked hard at it, then I feel ready. Yes. You know what yes. I mean? Um, and that's the kind of energy you want to show up with. But just on this thread where we're going through your journey and, and meditation and, and spirituality, I kept thinking about, okay, what are the ways that we can approach our creative process, whether it's interviewing, music, painting, whatever it is. We have all kinds of different listeners. I've heard a lot of people say like, yes, I love flow state and the creative process when it happens, but it's so elusive. Mm -hmm. um, and I've just, I feel like I've learned some tools over the years to get, get access to it more often. Yeah. Um, we just talked about some of them in terms of the prep and the interview and all that kind of thing. But could you talk to us a little bit about Samu and, and what that means? Yeah, I think actually it might be pronounced Samu, okay, um, Samu, but I don't know that for sure. It is a, I believe it's a Japanese term, and I learned about it in Zen. It's, it's in Zen we talk about Samu, and Samu means work practice. And so work practice, if you were in a monastery, it would be whatever your job is to keep that monastery up. It might be to go sweep all the uh, trails. It might yeah. be to clean the toilets. It might be to chop the vegetables. It might be to wash the dishes. It, it, you get the idea. Yeah. And we all have those practice. We all have those things in our own life. We have to do them. They're just part of living, right? Yeah. And we can do them without thinking about them at all. I can absolutely wash the dishes, chop the vegetables, sweep the floor and listen to a podcast and listen to music or think about anything I want. It doesn't need my attention. But in Samu, we make it need our attention, or I should say we bring our attention to it. And so we just try and keep our attention on whatever it is we're doing as closely as we can. It's often described as a bridge between like a seated meditation and just being completely in the world. And anybody who is a meditation practitioner who's had some degree of benefit from it will know that like, well, once it's over, it's often over. Like, now, I'm not saying its benefits yeah. don't spill out into the rest of life, but that's not the end of the story. And so Samu is intended, you know, in the, in the Zen tradition is intended to be a bridge between those two. But it's also moving meditation. And, and for some people, moving meditation is better than sitting meditation or seated meditation. But yeah, you just bring your attention to it. So for me, my Samu tends to be washing the dishes. Now, I think I might need to pick a new one yeah. because my partner and I tend to talk while I'm washing the dishes. Yeah. And so, and that's important time to me. But with uh, Samu for, for washing the dishes, I'm just paying as close attention as I can. And it's kind of boring, right? I yeah. mean, you have to keep bringing your attention back to it. But, you know, what does the water feel like on my hands? What does the soap feel like? What is the smell? How hard am I having to press to, you know, on the sponge? What are the sounds that are happening from the water hitting the plates and then coming off the plate and hitting the sink? I mean, all these just very close details, which is sort of everything I just described is sort of how a poet would look at things, right? Yeah. They would be very focused, or a photographer, or a painter of a certain scene. So it is just a, it is a practice of learning to deepen attention. And that is part of what meditation is about, is that ability of steadiness of attention. Yeah. You know, meditation is a weird thing because you're trying to sort of balance this real openness also with this focus. Yeah. And 
what we focus on in meditation can be very different and there's a lot there. But, but yeah, Samu is a great practice that anybody can do. There was an Indian spiritual teacher. Um, I cannot remember her name now. It doesn't matter. Yeah. She had like 10 kids. Yeah. And she took care of the kids, but she was considered an enlightened being. You know, and at the end of the day, after she passed, someone was like, or maybe it was right before she passed. Somebody was like, well, how did you manage to become enlightened while you were like taking care of all these children? <laughs> and like, this does, you know, you yeah. cleaning the house. And she said, I just mindfully stirred the rice. I'm not sure if she would have used the word mindfully. She probably would have said, I paid attention when I, when I, when I was stirring the rice, mm-hmm. you know? And so spirituality to me is not this other thing that we do, this other place that we go. It's, it's literally about all the moments of our lives. And, and one of the key elements to me is attention. How do I bring more attention to what I'm doing? Yeah. And this is not to say that every menial task should be given your full attention. There's, there's plenty of times for like, yep, I am doing this menial task and I'm listening to Andy's amazing podcast. Like, you know, I'm not, this is not a, a, you should do this all the time. Sure. But, but most of us do not spend much time training our attention and it is so important. Yeah. I love that. And I love, especially it's very practical to, for me to think of it as getting into my senses as I go to paint. Yeah. 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 It's, it's exactly that. It, it is. If you want to do that same practice, when you take a walk, it doesn't matter. It, it's, it's about attention to me, you know, um, in my spiritual habits program, the very first principle is sort of intention and attention and intention is just what really matters to me. What's important and asking that often, What's important about this meeting I'm going into? What's important about dinner with my spouse tonight? And then is my attention aligned with that? Yeah, that's really good. I, I've i been uh, in the picture book space for a, a while now, and I found myself getting just overwhelmed. And then especially in the middle when I still had so much left to do, so overwhelmed, rushing all that kind of thing until I, I, I hated the process. Mm-hmm. And then I realized like, Oh, the only reason I wanted to do this was because I like doing this. <laughs> and that intention piece is exactly what I stumbled upon accidentally, which, which was my intention is to enjoy this process. Yes. Yeah. And if I don't set that, I'm realizing that I'm getting completely out of whack with what I'm trying to do here. Yeah. That, that is such a, a really great insight and really great example. And I do think it speaks to this idea of reflecting often on why are we doing what we're doing? Because most of us will tend to get into, I have to, yeah, which leads to feeling trapped. I have to finish this picture book by this date. Well, technically, no, you don't really. Right, I mean, you, yeah. you could default on the contract. What are you don't yeah. have to, Right. But you've chosen to, and th- but then remembering like, why did I choose to, you know? So I have to take, I, I use this example all the time, but you know, I used to say, I have to take Jordan to soccer practice. That's my son. He's, yeah. he's 24 now. I have to take him to soccer practice. And one day I was like, no, I don't. Like there is no law in the world <laughs> that says that my son has to be in soccer. Yeah. He doesn't even want to go half the time. Yeah. So why? Yeah. You know, oh, it's because I love my son. 
And I think that being on a team is good for him and moving his body is good for him. And I can't, all of a sudden, the same activity, driving him to soccer practice, has a very different feel because yeah. I've reconnected to what matters instead of being on autopilot and resenting life. And so you just gave a, a, a great example of that. Thanks. And I, and I, uh, it also unlocked how to, if my intention is to enjoy it, then all of a sudden I started going to, what are the ways that I do enjoy this? Yeah. How do I make this an enjoyable experience? If that's yep. my, if that's what I'm going for. And all of a sudden I was like, Oh, I'm with this part of the process. It's better if I'm alone, if I'm shut out from the world, you know, with this part of the process, it looks like this kind of music, that kind of setup, <laughs> this part of the day, you know, whatever yeah. it is. And all of a sudden I'm like, Oh, I like doing this again. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I'm, I'm, I'm doing a lot more writing lately and, yeah. um, it's hard for me to do kind of, and it's yeah. not, it's something that when the time comes to do it, I very often am like, Oof, don't <laughs> want to do it. Right. Yeah. Um, even though it's strange, I actually, when I'm in it, enjoy it. But I found that like, if I will go somewhere to the library, to a coffee shop, you know, and I'll put on a certain playlist, like all of a sudden, then I, I'm, I, a, I enjoy it more. Yeah. And B, I've sort of started to do, now I'm venturing kind of into your world about, about creativity. But for me, there's something about setting a stage for something. Yeah. You know, my brain now expects when it hears this playlist that what I'm going to do is focus on writing. Yeah, 100%. I, um, well, I mean, honestly, there's 10 other threads I could pull, but I'm, I'm wondering if we should probably wrap it up pretty soon. We've been going for a, quite a while. Uh, but We'll, we'll table it for a round two because I feel like um, there's so many threads yeah. that we could pull out. Yeah, I barely, I feel like I did most of the talking there. And there's well, a bunch of I stuff <laughs> I wanted to pull, pull from you. So next time. Yeah. All right. Definitely. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Andy. Don't forget to check out Eric's podcast, The One You Feed. Uh, I recommend the episode with James Clear, another Columbus native, uh, has one of the biggest best-selling books of recent years, Atomic Habits. If you want to dive into habit formation, I think there's tons of good stuff for creatives in there. Um, he spoke with Gretchen Rubin, all kinds of other people. Go check out that podcast. Really great if this is the kind of thing that you are needing in your creative practice. But let's end with a little creative call to adventure, a way to put some of the ideas from this show into practice right now. So in this episode, I talked with Eric about the idea of Samu, and it's this process of immersive attention to the thing that you're doing. And I wondered if there was a way of applying this today in the stuff that you're creating. Is there a way in which you can be more present in the actual creative space. And I don't want to just say, be more present in the creative space today. I want to give you a tool. So I was looking into this book called uh, Drawing from the Right, Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain. And the whole idea there is that you, I think it's really good to approach your creative process, sometimes in the kind of left hemisphere, sometimes in the right hemisphere. I heard one of my favorite illustrators, Sam Bosma, talk about how it was such a breakthrough when he realized in college, I believe he said that 
he could improve his drawing by sometimes thinking about what he's drawing and thinking while he's drawing, like actively making decisions and really approaching it through a more analytical lens. And I think he was quick also to say like, it's not really how he wants to draw all the time. And by the way, he's an amazing illustrator and, and just incredible at drawing. But I think drawing on the right side of the brain is, is preferable. I think the problem is, especially as someone like me, who's neurodivergent, who finds it hard to like, when I get a groove, it can very easily become a rut. If I start thinking while I'm drawing on the left side, it's very hard for me to move to the other side. And so it's, it's a practice of mine to try and approach the drawing table in different ways uh, and try not to make any of them too much of a rut. And so if, and by the way, I'm oversimplifying the hemispheres of the brain. I don't fully understand it, but I'm also told that it's not that clear, but anyway, it's just a way for us to conceptualize it. Okay. And it's kind of appropriate to the one you feed because the one you feed podcast is all about that ancient tale about there's two wolves inside of you. And I do think there's just, and, and, it, and the one you feed is the one that grows. You know, there's the violent one and there's the, there's the loving one. That's an oversimplification as well. But drawing on the right side of the brain, I think there's an interesting exercise from that book that we can apply to our creative practice and get some interesting results. And so one of the exercises I read about from the book was this idea of drawing a object, but drawing it upside down because it changes your perception and you don't have to think about the object as that's a chair. You have to think about it just as a shape, just as an aesthetic, just as something to interact with on an aesthetic sensory level. And I wanted to in, uh, invite you to draw upside down, but to do that in multiple ways, depending on your medium, depending on what kind of catches your attention. So you can draw upside down with your intentions. And so I, I, um, I don't know if this will come out before or after we did, we're doing a episode that's a buffet of podcast episodes uh, of other podcasts. And I talk about Daniel Kwan, um, are the Daniels who made everything everywhere all at once. And they also made a movie called Swiss army man, which is completely bonkers. And, um, it's about a dead guy who is used as a kind of device to surf, surf for this other guy to survive on an Island. It's just completely bonkers, but they drew upside down with their intentions. And so drawing upside down for a movie premise would look like, what is the weirdest, what's the worst idea we could come at this with? Because the right side up way is what's the best idea. And so if you flip your intentions, you might be able to find something interesting there. Okay. The second version of drawing upside down that I will throw at you is upside down order. And so for me, often when I write a story, either an analogy for this show or a kid's book or, you know, a, even a post on Instagram, whatever it is that I'm doing that I'm using storytelling techniques of any kind, I will often start with the end and work backwards. And it's kind of the technique that you see with mystery writers. 
I imagine people like Ryan Johnson who wrote Knives Out and Glass Onion probably write things this way. And it's essentially just saying, where do I want to end up? And then how do I place all of the pieces backwards? And there's even a way you can do it where you can do it like memento style, I think is how that works, where it actually starts at the end and goes and goes to the beginning. Um, but what are the ways in which you could write a song where you started with what do you want the last line to be? And then you can work back on how to make that a surprising but inevitable ending point. And I think there are a lot of TV shows that should have started this way. Um, and I think sometimes you start with the end and then you go back to the beginning. And then by the time you end it, you change the ending. But it can be an interesting way to start upside down. Upside down perspective. This one is really powerful for me. I just did this recently. I have took a little class on writing recently here at the Thurber house in Columbus. And it was really fun. And I started this writing prompt through the lens of the, the prompt was, when do you feel most invisible? And I, and I thought, Oh, I probably feel most invisible when I'm in a conversation about basketball with my dad and his friends. <laughs> like I just don't know what I'm talking about. And I just feel completely invisible in that scenario. And I wanted to write from that perspective. But the more I thought about the story structure, the more I thought like the artist that thinks that they're better than the athletes because they're more philosophical or higher minded and they're infantile in their obsession with balls and timeouts and, you know, all this stuff like that seemed like the obvious direction. But and also kind of this could be the start of the story, but that story would be told where the artist was the one, the one with hubris is the one that has the lesson to learn. And so then I started thinking about it from the opposite perspective. And it kind of reminds me of um, something I've only heard about. I don't know super, I'm not super familiar with it, but it's super fascinating. I have this book on my shelf called Either Or, and it's by Soren Kierkegaard, who's this super famous philosopher. And he's famous for writing under monikers and basically tearing apart <laughs> writings that he's done from himself. And that book, I believe, is two perspectives arguing with each other uh, about a topic, but they're both him. He's just writing from different perspectives. So what would it look like if you tried to write from the basketball player's point of view? Or what would it look like if you tried to write this, the breakup song from the opposite uh, point of view? I saw my daughter showed me recently. I don't know if she, where she heard this or if she noticed it, but that the Miley Cyrus's flowers song that's popping off on the internet uh, relates perfectly to this Bruno, Bruno Mars song where the lines, I think it's Bruno Mars, the lines match up like a conversation. And so how could you take an upside down perspective, take the opposite perspective of the one that you typically have and find something new? The class that I was doing at the Thurber House with the creative writing teacher, Nicole Nesda, was all about art as transformation, like making stuff, not just to transform a piece of paper into something, but to transform you. And so that only happens when you allow yourself to be surprised. And that happened through the process of taking an upside down perspective. So that's my challenge to you. Draw upside down to have a kind of Samu experience, an attentive experience that you're engaging in the work fully there, not taking assumptions about what the chair is, but turning it upside down and seeing it in a whole different perspective. 
All right, massive thanks to Eric Zimmer. I'm probably going to be on his show pretty soon, uh, so t- stay tuned for that. I'll try to give you an update when that comes out. A massive thanks to Eric for coming in and chatting with me. This was really great, and I'm glad I got to share his uh, perspective with you. All right, thanks to Yoni Wolf and the band Y for our theme music and soundtrack. Thanks to Connor Jones of Pending Beautiful for editing the show so beautifully and extra bits, the sound design and what have you. Thanks to Ryan Appleton, Katie Chandler, and Sophie Miller for podcast assistance of all sorts and shapes and kinds. And until we speak again, stay pepped up. Stay pepped up.